And hello, I am Joe Alcock. I am going to talk to you today about evolutionary medicine, and I'm very thankful for Joe Tompkins for inviting me to join your class and have an opportunity to talk to you guys about applying evolutionary ideas to medicine and public health, which is my passion, something I'm super interested in. So we'll go through uh, some of the stuff, I guess. Um, first off, let me tell you who I am. I'm an emergency physician, and I work at the University of New Mexico at the Health Sciences Center, where I train emergency physicians as well as medical students, and I teach a class on evolutionary medicine that sometimes includes undergraduates in the biology department and anthropology departments, uh, which is a great deal of fun. And I've been teaching this topic uh, since about 2008. And as I mentioned, this is pretty much the thing that keeps me excited about medicine, gets me up in the morning. It's not just that, of course, but there, there's just so many applications of evolutionary biology to medicine. And we're going to talk about a few of them. Um, the first thing we should do before proceeding is maybe we should define our terms. And evolutionary medicine, as I see it, is where evolutionary biology or evolutionary concepts intersect with health and disease. And this can relate to anything involving us humans or pathogens, something like HIV or malaria. Uh, but it also includes things that we don't think of as being pathogens, but human-associated biota. So things like, say, lactobacillus, which is a milk-associated microbe. These, these other organisms have some impact on health as well as disease. And so where these domains overlap is what I think of as evolutionary medicine. So it's a pretty broad area, and it's a relatively new area with regard to there being a society devoted to this topic and meetings, and I'll talk about that at the, at the very end of this presentation. So we'll move on to the next slide here. And just to give you a flavor again, I work in an emergency department where we are in a busy urban uh, emergency department getting patients delivered by ambulance. Um, and of course here in the United States, with the uh, degree of gun violence that we have, we have a decent amount of stabbings, shootings, uh, the garden variety kinds of car crashes, all the traumatic kinds of things that would bring one to an emergency department. And then we get infectious diseases, uh, we get heart attacks. So, and we just got through, at least in North America, we got through the uh, flu season, where it seemed like every single patient was spraying a fine mist of influenza virus over us on a daily basis. Of course, I got sick, as did most of uh, my colleagues. Um, to give you some additional flavor as to the kinds of things that, uh, that I take care of on a day-to-day -day basis, and in fact, I'll be going to work a shift in the emergency department this afternoon when I'm done with this recording. Uh, we get a very common complaint would be abdominal pain that might sometimes uh, be something like appendicitis, um, raising questions of, you know, why do we even have an appendix? That's an evolutionary question. Um, and we see plenty of people who come in with what we might call diseases of Western civilization. These are things like heart attacks, diabetes, hypertension, uh, even cancer, um, uh, obesity. Uh, there's a variety of, of illnesses that we get that, that involve changes to metabolism and chronic 
inflammatory conditions that drive a lot of patients to our emergency department. And of course, being in New Mexico, we have a, a high native population, and the Native Americans are seem to be particularly at risk for some of these illnesses. And again, this raises questions from an evolutionary point of view as to why that is. Uh, another category of things that we see in the emergency department would include uh, people doing stupid things, drunk driving, getting in accidents. Um, we oftentimes uh, will see that there's a male predominance. The typical kind of young male tends to get into trouble uh, in this regard more often than, uh, than women. Um, and that may be a, a discussion topic for why, why that would be. Why is it that men tend to be overrepresented in things like, uh, I guess this is a lobster uh, injury, but maybe more typical for New Mexico would be a snake bite. Um, we tend to see males more often than not, uh, usually intoxicated males, being the ones that get uh, those kinds of injuries. And if we go on, we can see um, another huge category would be the patients who come in either, either with an overdose of either a illicit substance or prescription. We see plenty of people that come in with polypharmacy, receiving a variety of different kinds of prescription medications mixed in with over-the-counter medications, mixed in with herbal remedies, and all the complications that come with that. Uh, but a fair amount of what we see, as far as I'm concerned, falls into the category of iatrogenic harm. So iatrogenesis means that we doctors are responsible for it. And this is a special area that I'm going to touch on here because I think that we make mistakes. We physicians make mistakes when we're taking care of patients uh, when we are causing harm. And you should know that you know, the first rule of medicine is do no harm. Uh, and I think that we fall short in this area and oftentimes we have unintended consequences of the things that we do having an evolutionary perspective can shine a light on those things. So that's super important. And if we move on, here's a typical scene that I might encounter later on uh, today with looking over the bedside and seeing a variety of measurements of, of patients, things like a high temperature, a fever, a fast heart rate, a low blood pressure, and a fast respiratory rate. And so this might be a clue that a patient is getting a serious bacterial infection or what we call sepsis, and we're going to talk more about that. And I think that the typical way that doctors learn medicine is we think of the body as being something like a machine, that our bodies have a, a normal state of function, and that we, when we are, uh, for, for, because of illness or injury or something else, when, we, when our bodies deviate from that state of function or homeostasis, that that is what causes illness. So a great deal of what we learn in medical school is how can we diagnose a problem, and we do this by measuring vital signs and other parameters in our patients, and we oftentimes, if they, we flag the ones that are abnormal as being, uh, those are the ones that catch our eyes, and we try to bring them back to homeostasis. So this leads, I think, the incorrect analogy of thinking of, about the body as a machine and the doctor as a mechanic. But this is a, a typical way of thinking, which I think can, should be overturned by an evolutionary point of view. We really need to look at things differently when it comes to uh, evolution and the body. So what might an alternative be to thinking about the body as a machine? Well, this is a, a 
paper that came out recently. You can find it on the plos.org uh, blog. And it made the point why medical practitioners should be scientists and not mechanics. And the answer, as given in this article, and one that I actually agree with, is that we need to bring in the idea of uh, thinking about our bodies as being one in ecology, and we'll talk about the microbiome here a little bit later, but also that our physiology reflects a variety of evolved trade-offs. So when we bring evolutionary biology into the mix and we think about how that might apply to our bodies, then we, 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 we can reject this idea of the body as a machine that just breaks down and that we are just behaving like mechanics. Uh, there's more to it than that. Um, and I think that the, the two major areas in which we can do things differently are to, one, recognize that not every abnormality or thing that looks broken is indeed broken. Because sometimes what we're, what we're seeing is actually functional or adaptive. So understanding something about the nature of adaptation and how we can apply uh, the concept of, of function to various disease manifestations is one area where, where I think we can learn a lot from evolution. The second area, which I'm going to focus on for the remainder of this talk, is the idea that we've co-evolved with a community of microbes, collectively known as the microbiome. So I think those, those are the two things, the two insights that, that I probably make the biggest difference, at least for my own personal practice. Of course, evolutionary medicine, as I mentioned, is broad, and it's broader, broader than just the two things that I'm going to talk about here. But those, those are the high-impact take-home messages that I want you, as the listener, to take from this talk. So number one is that sometimes when we see something that looks abnormal, it may in fact be adaptive. It may in fact represent a host defense. Uh, fever is one example, which we'll, we'll get into in a moment. But the second take-home is that because we have evolved, not in isolation, but we've evolved along with a community, an ecology of microbes that's co-evolving with us, that leads to a bunch of interesting uh, predictions for how our bodies might relate to health and disease and how these microbes can play a role. And to me, this is absolutely fascinating. It's a new area of medicine. We didn't learn anything about the microbiome uh, in medical school, and it's one of the top areas in which we can apply evolutionary ideas to our bodies. So the first concept, though, that what we might see as doctors, and again, we'll use fever as the best example here, might not actually be a disease in and of itself. That sometimes what we're, what we're seeing in our patients is actually an adaptation that helps the body overcome both an, an environmental or an infectious challenge. And so this was written up recently, a paper came out that I wanted to highlight here by Peter Soders and Peter Delu, and I'm sure that I have mispronounced both of those names. But they write, disease or adaptation, another look at the practice of medicine. And I like this paper because it really does uh, concisely articulate the viewpoint that I hold dear, which is that not every, not every abnormality, not every patient who comes in the door and has something that we measure as being different from a normal person, that's not all a disease in and of itself. Some of these things actually help the patient get back to the normal state. So we doctors should sometimes not interfere with them. So it's important to correctly identify those and to make the correct decision about whether to intervene or not. 
So here's, I, I went to Google this morning, and so I did this on my own personal laptop, and I know that you know, Google uses an algorithm that reflects something about your previous searches. So this may not be what you find when you Google fever, but I, go, I put fever in the search bar, hit the click, uh, the, the return tab, and it gave me 79 million results. And what I like about this is that if you look at the, the last sentence here, it says most fever is beneficial, causes no problems, and helps the body fight off infections. So this is what Google returns as the number one result, which is great. But I'll tell you that at least in my emergency room, this is not how we actually practice. The nurses will come to us and say, your patient has a temperature of 38.3 or 39 degrees Celsius. What should I do, doctor? And what they're really asking for is something like Tylenol, an antipyretic or paracetamol, I should say, uh, or something to bring down the temperature. We also use ibuprofen or NSAIDs, and sometimes patients will come in specifically because they have had a fever that keeps coming back after multiple doses of paracetamol, and they view this as a problem. But the question is, should, should fever really be a, a problem in and of itself? And like Google, I would take the perspective that sometimes fever is not the problem and it may not need fixing in the way that other things do. So why do I say this? Well, there was work done by a scientist named Matthew Kluger, um, and he did work published in uh, science back in the mid-1970s. And he studied uh, a species of iguanid, so a lizard. And the nice thing about looking at lizards, if you're interested in fever and the function of fever, is that lizards can't control their body temperature the way that we can. They can't mount a fever by a, with an endogenous response in the way that we can. So, but, but iguanas still can have a fever, and they do it behaviorally. So when, when iguanas get sick, they actually move towards heat sources and have, have this behavioral change, which allows them to have, allow their body temperature to rise. So what Matthew Kluger did was he infected these iguanas with a bacterium, Aramonas, and then prevented some of them from going towards the heat source that would allow them to have a behavioral fever. So he could actually control the temperature of these iguanas. And remarkably, he showed that the survival of the lizards was entirely dependent on the temperature that they were allowed to reach. So the one, the See, the survival is here on the uh, y-axis. Time is on the x-axis. And the animals that were able to maintain a temperature of 42 degrees C had the best survival. Very few of them died. The animals who were only allowed to, to get their body temperature to 34 degrees C, they died uniformly after about three and a half days. And of course, in between, there was intermediate survival. What does this tell us? It tells us that a behavioral fever, if you're an iguana and you have a bacterial infection, is a very good thing to have. And uh, others have, have noted that even invertebrates seem to mount a fever. There's an African grasshopper, that, a Senegalese grasshopper, that mounts a behavioral fever. There is a, in, in the same, much the same way that uh, these uh, iguanas do, there are bees that will uh, vibrate their wings um, kind of like what we do when we shiver and increase the colony, colony temperature uh, when the colony is infected with uh, a mite or, um, or other infections. 
So invertebrates mount, mount fevers, we find that the, the febrile response does not even require uh, being one being a, being a vertebrate, having a what we think of as being um, a complex uh, immune system the way that we do, uh, and it's conserved. It's evolutionarily conserved over a broad group of uh, phylogenetically distant organisms. What does this tell us? Well, it implies the idea that fever exists in all of these different organisms and hasn't been selected against implies that fever provides a function, and the Kluger experiment gives us an idea about what the nature of that infection of that function is and it's to fight infection so fever is oftentimes just like google tells us a beneficial response something that doesn't necessarily need an intervention per se uh, to bring down the temperature and it's 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 good for us so but this is these are lizards and people have argued for years that we don't have great evidence that fever is useful or uh, beneficial in humans but let's let's briefly go over that this is work published last year, and the, this is an observational study, so it comes with all the usual caveats of an observational trial, in that they didn't uh, control the body temperature of patients coming to the emergency, accident and emergency room, but they observed the initial temperature of patients presenting with, with an infection, and then they measured the overall survival. And very much like the Iguana study that Kluger did, these workers showed that the mortality percent was highest in the group of patients who presented with an infection who had the lowest temperature. So lowest temperature equaled highest mortality. The patients with a temperature of over 41 degrees C had the best survival, um, or the best mortality, depending on how you want to look at this. But at any rate, they did better than the people that had uh, the lower temperatures. So I actually, so this paper is very useful as far as I'm concerned because when someone, come, a trainee comes to me in the ER and says, hey, got a patient with a fever. I want to give paracetamol. I bring this up and show, show, show this to them. And then we can talk about the iguanas, some additional data, and oftentimes I will change their mind. But again, this is an observational trial. So observational trials can be, uh, they don't necessarily shock, show causation. We can't conclude that the patients that had the highest temperatures did best and survived best because of the fever. It doesn't show causation. For that, you need to do a controlled experiment. Um, and so there's a couple of randomized controlled trials that also inform this question. Let's look at one of those. Well, here, here they both are. So one was a, a, a study that came out um, two years ago. The author was Paul Young of New Zealand, and the work was it was called the heat trial and they gave paracetamol or acetaminophen as we call it in north america to patients who were critically ill in the intensive care unit and they randomized them to either receiving paracetamol or placebo and then they measured their 28-day survival and whether how long it took them to be discharged out of the icu but the primary outcome measure uh, for this was was mortality and what they did, what, they had two main findings of the HEAT trial. So one is that you get no benefit in these sick patients by giving paracetamol. Patients absolutely don't do any better if you give them paracetamol. Uh, but they didn't show a signal of harm. So they didn't actually show that paracetamol killed patients. So, which is why two or three years later, 
we're still giving paracetamol to our patients in the ER because someone might conclude, well, at least it doesn't do any harm, right? But does this really inform the question of whether temperature control and reducing temperature might hurt patients? And it turns out that in the HEAT trial, the temperature came down, but it didn't come down all that dramatically. And of course, it went back up again very frequently after patients had received paracetamol. So the second trial, which came out this year in 2018, was done uh, where they actually gave induced hypothermia and they used a cooling blanket to have better control over the temperature. And these are patients who were on ventilators in the intensive care unit, uh, critically ill people that they physically, mechanically cooled to a set temperature. And in that trial, they showed that cooling patients most definitely kills them. So there was absolute evidence of harm. So if our hypothesis or a priori hypothesis is that fever is helpful and beneficial, we would be surprised if either one of these trials showed that the intervention improved outcomes and made patients survive better. Neither one of these trials showed any improvement. And in fact, the second trial showed evidence of harm. And the second trial did a better job of actually lowering the body temperature. So we can conclude though that if you have a bacterial infection, particularly a life-threatening one, the worst thing you can do would be to lower their body temperature. This to me is excellent evidence along with the uh, comparative data that we know from other species, along with the observational data that we know in patients presenting to the accident and emergency department, that maybe we don't need to worry so much about trying to control fever. Uh, so something to think about. And this goes along with the idea that not all abnormalities should be considered abnormal. If you are sick, having a fever is good and it's, it, it'll be abnormal to not have a fever. That's the point. That's because this represents an evolved host defense. And this is a, an insight that we physicians would do well to pay more attention to. And it's a shame that we don't. Um, unfortunately, I would say this Lancet study, it didn't get discussed at all in my department, and I don't think it's changed practice. So the other point here is that, imagine that everybody in my hospital had the luck to have a course like the one that you're being taught right now, and were exposed to some of these ideas. The fact that these, these results are in accord with an evolutionary point of view might actually do a better job of making that beneficial change in practice. It hasn't happened yet. I'm sure it will. And it's going to happen because of classes like the one that you're taking right now. So the other story that I want to tell you about a possible host defense and a, a, an abnormality that we almost always intervene on, and it might be a mistake, is this one. The patients who come to the ER or admitted to the hospital, into the intensive care unit, they oftentimes have a high blood sugar. And in fact, the uh, paper that I highlighted earlier that said perhaps diseases are adaptations, um, that they made the same point here, is that any normal person, you, me, if we walk out into the street and get hit by a car, or if we get an overwhelming infection, we will have a high blood sugar, most of us. And in fact, having a high blood sugar might be protective. But that's not the common knowledge in medicine. The common thinking is that this is something that needs fixing. So here's an example of that conventional wisdom, which is that high blood sugar or hyperglycemia is metabolic self-destruction. It's 
self-destructive. It's bad. So we, need, we should do something about it. What should we do? We should give our patients insulin. But this is not the only point of view. There are others that argue that, giving, that having a high blood sugar might actually be beneficial. It's an essential stress response, says people like Paul Merrick. Well, lucky for us, the idea of high blood sugar or hyperglycemia as a major problem that needs to be normalized or fixed has been put to the test. And it was put to the test several years ago in what was called the NICE sugar study. This is a big trial. It was a randomized controlled trial. Uh, and they, uh, the treatment group, patients were brought back to close to the normal range. That Their blood sugars were brought back to the blood sugar of a normal person or closer to it. They, call, they called that uh, intensive insulin treatment. Other people were allowed to have higher, ab more abnormal blood sugars. Everybody in this trial received insulin to some degree, and they enrolled 6,000 patients. What they showed, which was unexpected, was that there was higher mortality in the group that was more normal. So when we, when we actually normalized the blood sugar, we saw more deaths. So this is very much like that cooling blanket study where when we cooled people, we see more mortality. So perhaps when you are sick, it's good to be abnormal. And we doctors should not intervene, at least not as aggressively. That's the lesson of the nice sugar study. So that was adults. It's not the end of the story. And people still argue about this and argue about what the cause of the increased mortality is. And most people have said, well, the issue here is that intensive insulin treatment makes the blood sugar go too low. And that's what kills people. It's not really being normal. It's being too low. And there may be some truth to that. But another study that was done in, in children had the exact same result. This was published last year in the New England Journal of Medicine. And they, again, randomized children to intensive insulin treatment versus a, a placebo, or it's not, not a placebo, to uh, a less intensive insulin treatment where the blood sugars were allowed to remain high. And when th these investigators undertook this trial, they found that children who were given the intensive insulin treatment did worse again. So this was stopped early for harm. So in other, in other words, trying to normalize children or adults and trying to give them insulin to the point where their blood sugars are normal seems to hurt patients. This implies that perhaps having a high blood sugar is an adaptation and has some function. But again, what I'm telling you is that this is an unpopular idea in medicine. It is one which I think is supported by an evolutionary point of view, uh, but it's not one that has reached broad acceptance in the medical community. Remarkably, though, when the Cochrane Review, which is a, a group that does a meta-analysis, they take all of the available evidence and they lump things together, they looked at whether it's, it's a good idea to normalize glucose just in general in patients that have well, diabetes or high, high blood sugar, and they find that trying to make people normal seems to not make people better when it comes to having heart attacks or kidney disease, the things that we care about that we think that high blood sugar is causing. So I'm not prepared to go so far as to say that diabetes is itself an adaptation. I'm not saying that, but I, what I'm saying is that the stress hyperglycemia that we see in patients with trauma, that we see in patients with sepsis, patients in the intensive care unit, that kind of hyperglycemia does not seem to be linked with an increased risk of death per se, and that fixing it seems to be harmful. 
Uh, the, the evidence there suggests that having a high blood sugar may indeed be beneficial under certain circumstances. And here are data from our own hospital. Uh, these are blood sugars. We'll say that 100 to 120 is normal. Uh, what we can see here is the distribution of blood sugars in patients with sepsis who were admitted to the hospital. The people who lived look quite similar to the overall group and the people who died, if anything, they appear to have a slightly lower blood sugar overall. So having a high blood sugar does not mean that you're going to necessarily die. In fact, many patients with very, very high blood sugars survive sepsis. So this is interesting, uh, interesting work that we're working on right here at the University of New Mexico. So I'm going to switch gears here and we're going to tell a different story which has to do with the microbiome. So the, the first part is that some of the things that we see in our bodies, particularly with trauma and critical illness, things that are near and dear to my heart because they apply to a lot of the patients that I see in the emergency department, that some of those things we shouldn't intervene on at least as aggressively. And there's a great increasing body of work that supports this point of view. And the reason for that, from my point of view, is that some of those things are host defenses and fever being exhibit number one in that, in that point of view. The other major application of an evolutionary point of view really has to do with this new and emerging area of the microbiome. Because we've, we have co-evolved as, you know, as mammals, as multicellular organisms, as life on this earth, we have co-evolved with close associated organisms that we'll call the microbiota for a long time, at least two billion years. Because the, the first symbiont that we think that we have as eukaryotes is the mitochondrion. So mitochondria uh, it, are thought to have appeared <laughs> about two billion years ago. That the, a single-celled organism probably tried to gobble up another organism, was unable to actually uh, destroy it, and the two, or, two organisms uh, coexisted. This is thought to be how mitochondria and even multicellular organisms got their start. That event happened two billion years ago. Uh, the, about um, one billion years ago is where true multicellularity really got its start and multiple cells cooperated. And that's how we have things like ourselves with uh, a uh, body made up of cells that have nearly the same genetic makeup. About 500 million years ago, we evolved a adaptive immune system and it's thought that the reason why with bony fishes, the evolution of an adaptive immune system had, had to do with the fact that we are always colonized by other organisms. So not only are, are we made up of our own cells, but we're made up of lots of cells of genetically unrelated organisms that have consequences for our health. And then 160 million years ago is where mammals first appeared. So we'll talk about milk. And if we can get into it, maybe we'll talk about, we'll certainly talk about um, agriculture and modern diets, that, that plays a role. And then penicillin being uh, a big thing, antibiotics have a big impact on our microbiotas. So this is a, a, a shortened version of um, sort of the evolution of uh, multicellular organisms and our microbiotas on planet Earth and all the big events certainly that, that affect human health. But the salient feature of ourselves and probably the people you know, listening to this is that we as modern humans living in an industrialized world, we have suffered a loss of biodiversity of the microbiome compared to what we think we evolved with 
and the stand-ins that we use nowadays to study an evolutionarily relevant uh, environment is to look at hunter-gatherers. So this study looked at the Hadza in Tanzania, in Africa, and compared it on the right to children in Italy who lived a modern, westernized lifestyle. The number of colors here reflects the different kinds of bacteria that were present in the guts of uh, these two groups, and the Italians had far less biodiversity. So this is true across the board. And the, the group that has the best, <laughs> or we'll call it the best, the most diverse microbiomes, something that we think of as being a correlate of health and metabolic health, is that the Yanomami living in uh, the Amazon rainforest is the group that has the, the most biodiversity of any group that's ever been looked at. So why is that important? Well, it's important because there are things that we do in our modern lifestyles that, that, that have prompted the extinction or extirpation of various groups of, of microbes in our guts. As compared to hunter-gatherers, a modern uh, industrialized lifestyle, like the one that I exist in, doesn't leave much room for a whole group of fiber-digesting microbes. And these are actually in the treponema group. So the same group that contains syphilis, but there are some good members of that, uh, of, of that group of, of bacteria. And uh, these trep treponema are fiber digesters. We see a lot of these in uh, Amerindians and in uh, African hunter-gatherer groups. Um, the, the, those are just absent in, uh, in, in us. So why do we have that? Probably because of uh, antibiotic use, um, changes in eating habits, uh, less fiber in our diet, a variety of different things. So Marty Blazer of New York University has argued that this is the inciting feature that is responsible for many ills of modern society. The fact that we have co-evolved with a variety of species, some of which do beneficial and useful things for us, and their absence is what makes us sick. So it's an interesting hypothesis, but at its root is a evolutionary idea that we have co-evolved along with these species, that are, we, we are not simply a organism, certainly not like a machine. If we are a machine, we're a machine that's inhabited by lots of other kinds of machines. So we're with the complexity here and the nuance and the, the idea that we are part of a, an ecology in our bodies is a relatively novel way to think about human, or ourselves and human health and disease. So Marty Blazer says that antibiotics are part of the problem and overuse of antibiotics is certainly a problem. So here are all the things that having a low diversity microbiome seems to be associated with. And antibiotics might play a role in some of these things. Certainly early exposure to antibiotics does predispose to becoming obese later in life. And along with obesity, we find lipid problems, so high cholesterol. We find fibrinogen disorders, so you're more likely to have blood clots, strokes, and heart attacks. We find hypertension. We find uh, that our blood sugar responses are different. It's getting back to high blood sugar. That we see frank insulin resistance and diabetes. All these things go along with uh, the low-grade inflammation that accompanies obesity. And obesity isn't simply a cosmetic concern. Um, that along with the trends of obesity, so here are some changes in the incidence of obesity, which is defined as a body mass index of greater than 30, uh, that back in the 1990s, so when I was in college, 
we found that uh, fewer than about 10% of people, most people in the United States, were categorized as being obese. More recently, in 2009, it was more than 30% in many states, and now we are approaching 40% obesity in much of the US. So, problem? I'd say yes, because obesity is associated with all of these comorbid disease associations, like the diabetes, like the increased hypertension, uh, things like sleep apnea and atherosclerosis, the predisposition to get strokes and heart attacks. So this is an issue, and it's not just in the US. We find similar findings in Australia. I couldn't find a map that looked exactly like what was shown in the United States, but, oops, let's go back. But at least in Australia, uh, looking at the percentage of adults who are overweight and obese in 2011-12, it um, is approaching 60% in most of the continent. So a very similar kind of uh, problem. This is, they categorized overweight plus obesity. So there's a broader, uh, you know, a broader basket uh, that they're putting people into. But this is, a, this is really a nationwide problem. It's not just in the US, not just in Australia, certainly Asia and China is undergoing a very similar pattern of, of disease. And the, again, the, the health problem, the main health problem here is diabetes, that we see diabetes and all the complications that go along with that. And notwithstanding my previous statement that having a high blood sugar might not be quite so bad for you, certainly by being diabetic is, and it is associated with increased mortality and increased, uh, decreased lifespan overall. So this is something that we want to avoid. And it turns out that the answer for why it is that obesity is such a modern problem, of course it has to do with diet, but it's not just diet acting independently on our bodies, it's diet interacting with our microbiome. We share what we eat with our microbes. And I would tell you that a donut, in the absence of a microbiota, if you didn't have a microbiome, you probably could feast on as many donuts as you want. Of course, we can't do this study in humans, but we can do it in mice. And I want to show you this, this study done by Jeff Gordon and Frederick Backhead and colleagues. It's now an old study from 2004, but it shows that mice that were raised in sterile conditions, so without any germs whatsoever, no microbiota, they were given, you could feed these animals any kind of diet, and they remained lean. The animals that were colonized with the microbiota, at least in this study, rapidly became obese. So this was the first study that showed that the microbiome can cause obesity, and that obesity might behave something like an infectious disease. So what does that mean for us and our bodies? Again, we're not iguanas, we're not mice. There's no study of germ-free humans. It just doesn't exist. It's not going to happen. But we can use these inferences and we can look at other, other lines of, of evidence that support the idea that our microbiomes they affect our guts and they affect whether we deposit energy as fat. They also affect our brains, they affect our immune systems, they affect whether we, we have allergies or not. And this is both good and bad. It's good because we understand some of these processes. And it's bad, uh, certainly, <laughs> it, cer it certainly is bad because um, there may be, we can do something about it, we can change the microbiome, but uh, the interventions that we've come up with so far have not been as successful as we might like. And part of that is that 
when it comes to our bodies and our development, there seems to be a, be a, a sensitive stage very early in our, in our lifespan, um, with, between the ages of zero and one, in which we are particularly uh, sensitive to the composition of the microbiome around us. And then later in life, once we become obese or we have allergies, we can do something about it, but not as much as we would, we would like. So let's talk about some of those early life exposures. And mammals, one, the lactation innovation of being a mammal that happened some 260 million years ago is that we as a, as a group of organisms um, came upon this innovative way of feeding our offspring with secreted products that uh, the, the mammary gland is actually a, secret, a modified sweat gland. And, but not only does, milk doesn't just contain nutrients. Milk contains a kind of indigestible fiber called a human, well for us humans, it's called a human milk oligosaccharide. The remarkable thing about these HMOs is that infants are unable to, to di digest them on their own. They can't extract energy from HMOs. So the, the function of an HMO is that they feed beneficial bacteria and human milk oligosaccharides, they feed a specific strain of bifidobacteria infantis. A strain which is associated with human health. A strain which is, seems to protect babies from diarrhea and protect from later metabolic problems and may actually protect from uh, some of the other issues that we see um, when a Western civilization, the obesity, the hypertension, the increased atherosclerosis. So having this, this early exposure to human milk oligosaccharides is linked and associated with a bunch of positive health outcomes. It does this because of the way that our microbes have been fed by, uh, by that specific nutrient source. As a food, milk is probably the best example of an evolved, evolved food. It's evolved for a function. That function is that uh, it promotes the, both the growth and the, and the health of babies, but it also promotes the growth of a completely different species, this, 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 group, this consortia of microbes. And milk also contains microbes. It contain, it, there's a milk microbiome. So milk contains both the fertilizer and the seed for the infant microbiome. And this is really a transfer that happens from mother to baby. And it's again a nice example of a co-evolutionary co relationship and one which is really a mutualism in which both partners are getting something out of this. And there's a transfer of resources that happens from mammal to microbe and then from microbe to mammal in terms of protection. Uh, so a, a great story, something that we need to pay attention to. It really highlights the importance of breastfeeding. And it's one of the other changes that might lead to modern people having a relatively depleted microbiome uh, as compared to what we think we humans evolved with. Being bored by, by cesarean section is another recent, we'll call it innovation, that changes the infant milieu of microbes that they're exposed to. So babies acquire their microbiome not only from milk, but from being born through the vaginal canal where they're exposed to vaginal microbes, also some fecal microbes, believe it or not. Anybody who's seen a birth uh, can attest to this. So what Gloria, uh, Maria Gloria Dominguez-Bello did with colleagues is that they took vaginal swabs that had been placed in mom's vagina and then swabbed the baby's mouth, uh, these are babies born by a cesarean section, to try to restore that very early uh, exposure to normal, normal microbes. 
And in fact, uh, they've shown that the babies that undergo this treatment have a microbiome more like babies that are born by a regular vaginal birth uh, as compared to babies that are born by C-section that don't have this uh, exposure. So there's, again, we can, we can sometimes do things to mimic the more natural evolved condition that we, we have, uh, that has shaped our evolutionary trajectory and may indeed be linked with some health benefits later in life. So uh, this, this research, which again was spearheaded out of New York University, um, is interesting and they'll follow these kids over the long term to find out whether they actually do better overall. All right, so if you're a baby, it's good not to be exposed to antibiotics, it's good to be breastfed, it's good to be born vaginally, and it's also good, apparently, to grow up in an, or in an environment that has lots of microbial exposures, including farm dust or farm, farm microbes. This work, done in 2016, uh, showed that Amish children, and these, this is a, a population that lives in North America, where people in general have rejected much modern technology and modern electronics, for instance, uh, but they, but they, and they also live in close association with farm animals. The Amish kids get very little allergy. This seems to be a microbe-associated response. So all in all, these fall under the umbrella of what we call the hygiene hypothesis. And the hygiene hypothesis says that our modern lives are too hygienic, too much antibiotics, too little exposure to farm animals, uh, industrialized birth by C-section, formula feeding and not being exposed to milk microbes. All these things seem to be potentially harmful and decrease the biodiversity of our, of our microbiomes. This is an unnatural situation, one that we might need to modify with um, treatments like what they're doing at NYU with babies born by C-section. But it really, it, this, again, at its core, this is an evolutionary hypothesis uh, that explains something about why it is that we modern people have both obesity uh, low-grade inflammation, and as in this study, allergic diseases, a hyper-reactive immune system. Another thing which is linked to having decreased uh, uh, wheezy bronchitis or allergy symptoms is having pets in the home. So having, having an animal in the house seems to be protective when you're an infant. And pet ownership can actually affect your microbiome, and that might be the means by which it impacts these allergic diseases. A paper that came out recently, which I thought was very interesting, showed that if you live in an urban environment, as I do, and perhaps you do, that both the dog owners have more allergies and the dogs have more allergies. So of course our pets are also gonna have some of the same exposures and the same microbiome-associated issues. They're your, your pet probably isn't born by C-section, probably isn't getting formula fed, but is living in an urban environment where the microbial inputs are different from a non-urban situation. And again, this, this again falls into this idea of what we'll call the hygiene hypothesis. So I've given a, given a broad brush to briefly overview some of the exposures by which we acquire a microbiome and how some of these co-evolved microbes affect things that we care about, like whether we have asthma or whether we become obese or whether we get heart disease, or whether we have di uh, diabetes or hypertension, stuff that are, we see frequently in the hospital. What I'm telling you is that the preponderance of evidence from, from work being done with the microbiome suggests that there's a signal 
of an input from the microbiome, and the microbiome is important. This is not to say um, that the microbiome explains everything, but as Rob Knight says with the American Gut Project, even crazy stuff where you wouldn't have thought the microbiome played a role, now we understand that it does. This has led some people to think, well, the microbiome is as important to you as is your heart or your liver or your adrenal glands, and it's like an organ. We should think of it as being an endocrine organ. So I only include this slide to say that I actually reject this point of view. Yes, the microbiome is important, but it's a mistake to think about all these microbes as being evolved just to do useful things to us and just to protect us from allergy or just to protect us from obesity. They're not necessarily our microbial friends. They're more our frenemies. And to the extent that we are a superorganism, that we mammals are as microbial with, we'll say, 100 trillion, probably more like 30 trillion microbes in recent work, and maybe 100 times the gene complement as compared to our own genomes, that the fa even the fact that we are a superorganism does not mean that our interests are in perfect alignment with our microbiotas all the time. In fact, we frequently come into conflict with our microbes. And so this, again, is the evolutionary insight that one, our coevolution with microbes is important, but two, microbes are not always our friends. And we expect as much conflict as cooperation. So here's all the good things that our microbes do for us. They do various things for our nutrition. They promote the development of our immune systems. Microbes, particularly that bifidobacteria, does protect us from infection. And some microbes may protect us from other microbes in the microbiome. And organ development happens with microbes uh, kind of shaping some of these developmental tra trajectories. But it's not something which is absolutely evolved to do us good things for our health, uh, this headline notwithstanding. So let's look at the next one. And the, the reason why we can't think of our microbiomes as being perfect friends or perfect mutualists is because even the cells in our own bodies don't always have our best interests at heart. And this is why cancer happens. The trying to get a bunch of cells to exist in the same place and to promote the health and the survival of the host, which is us, is a, is a challenge just in our own bodies. Um, so when we have all, all these cells that have, that have more or less, we'll say, decided, or by virtue of an evolutionary past, have evolved together, that comes with a challenge. And the challenge is how do we enforce cooperation between all these different cells that are, that are doing various functions? Um, and sometimes that, that cooperation breaks down. It breaks down in us in the form of cancer. The, that cells can go rogue and reproduce without restraints, leading to things like, like colon cancer in this example. Um, and as David Haig has pointed out, uh, anti-cancer mechanisms have evolved over time, which is why we don't get cancer, and that rogue cell lineages start from scratch with every, every generation in your somatic, uh, in the somatic cells in your body. So cancer does happen. Cancer should be thought of as a breakdown in cooperation. Luckily though, we have evolved to have various mechanisms that enforce cooperation in the genome. That's what David Haig is saying here, that it's a, that an important part of maintaining 
multicellular cooperation, and again, I'm just talking about our own cells, um, requires input and some evolved responses. It doesn't necessarily happen just automatically. So then you think about, well, what happens when we're interacting with lots of other genomes, things like the microbes in our guts, the microbes in our mouths, the microbes in our skin, all of these, they're not related to us at all. Um, so wh how, do we, how do we deal with that kind of problem of cooperation? And so the issue here uh, relates to um, an important concept in evolutionary biology, which is that whenever there is cooperation, there's always the problem of cheating. That if you have a rogue individual that decides to not follow the rules, that they can gain a reproductive advantage. And this happens in the short term in cancer, um, and, and cooperation breaks down. So in anytime there's a group of cells, particularly cells that differ genetically, we're gonna expect some degree of conflict. And the, uh, the concept that explains this um, is encapsulated with the Red Queen effect. So have you heard about the Red Queen effect? This holds that, so in, in uh, Alice in Wonderland, where Lewis Carroll writes that in order to um, stay in place, you have to run as fast as you can. And the, the Red Queen effect in biology is the idea that if there's two competing sets of organisms, that um, in order to maintain any kind of stable relationship, both, both sets are gonna have to evolve um, as fast as they can because one, one group will try to get, gain an advantage over the other. So we'll have an adaptation that gives one group an, uh, an advantage, then a counter-adaptation that more or less keeps things more or less the same. Bottom line, the Red Queen effect is an idea that predicts both cooperation and conflict when it comes to us and all the microorganisms that inhabit us, and this is particularly true for pathogens. Now, it's very important to recognize that in your guts right now, you have some pretty nasty bugs. Bugs that are definitely not there just to do you good things. Um, e. coli really is one of these. And modern diets that promote, that are low in fiber and actually can do damaging things to your gut barrier, they can actually promote conflict in your guts by giving advantages to some of these pathogens or what are called pathobionts, microbes that are potential pathogens. So here's an example. There's an industrialized food additive called polysorbate 80, which wipes out the mucus barrier and causes pathogens to invade your gut. This is bad news. It can happen every time you eat a cheap, uh, <laughs> cheap ice cream that contains some of these ingredients. So I, I would encourage you to uh, watch out for that. But again, this, the idea here is that junk food is junk food mostly because of the impact it has on your microbiome and mostly because some of these microbes that, that are, inhabit you, again, are not your friends. They're not gonna look out for your best interest. It requires an immune and other kinds of in, dietary input from you to maintain health and cooperation. Bring it back to the hospital. If I go to the hospital right now and go to the intensive care unit, I will find people with a very, very, we'll call it, you know, deranged microbiome. In the intensive care unit, exposure to multiple antibiotics, all of the medications that we give leave people with a microbiome that may, may contain only one or two or three species. These are hypervirulent microbiomes. If you're a patient, this is bad news because these hypervirulent microbiomes can actually cause sepsis and are linked with death. So 
Do we do sequencing and check the microbiome of all of our patients in the ICU? No. Will we in the future? I think that we will because these things are linked with mortality. Here's this source of sepsis and death that we're not paying attention to, and we really need to. A guy by the name of John Alverdy, he's a surgeon, he's at the University of Chicago, he coined this term. And again, this, this goes along with this frenemies idea that our microbiome is not just mutualist, beneficial, cooperative micro microbes, that in fact, some, in our patients in particular, many microbiomes become pathobiomes. They, they actually undergo a virulent transformation in which otherwise benign microbes might actually become pathogenic. And unfortunately for us, this can happen after exposure to antibiotics. This can happen after stresses like surgery. And again, he's a surgeon. So he has, he has found that success from surgery depends on the composition of the microbiome. So it's not just good aseptic technique, a good surgeon, but really what you have inside of you is gonna make a difference in whether you survive or whether you have a complication of surgery. So he just he describes this pathogenic transformation, um, in, including things like surgery. So surgery is a stress, and that stress of surgery can cause pathogens to predominate in your guts and cause them to spill out into your bloodstream. So again, I, I only raise this point because I don't want you to be left with the idea that it's just the missing microbe story that Marty Blazer and others have promoted. That's part of the story, but it's only half the story. So half the story is you need to have the good ones around, but the other half is that <laughs> these microbes are responsible for a whole variety of diseases. Why are they responsible for diseases? Because they are looking out for their own interests, and they have their own fitness imperatives, and they are, and those conflicts of interest between the microbes and ourselves is responsible for surgery complications or sepsis in some instances. And we're missing the boat here. We're not paying sufficient attention to these microbes. And just putting blinders on and imagining that they're only friendly is gonna be a mistake. So let's, let's bring it home here. So I have above me here, I have a, a George C. Williams, famous evolutionary biologist. And he uh, is of course famous in part for his writing about uh, the evolution of aging and something called antagonistic pleiotropy. But the other major, he's done some really wonderful things, but the other major contribution he made to science is to really focus us in on a scientifically rigorous view of adaptation and function. So he wrote that in biology, the question inevitably arises as to how such an abundance of misinterpretation has arisen about function and adaptation, where we just don't understand the nature of things. And he says that he believes that the major factor is that biologists have no logically sound and generally accepted set of principles and procedures for answering the question, what is its function? And this is when we look at a trait. And the trait could be high blood sugar, or the trait could be fever, or the trait could be a peacock's tail, you know, we can just think in biology of a variety of different examples. So he and others have gone on to say that Darwin has given us a, un a united framework for understanding biological functions based on the question, why did a trait evolve? This is what's missing from medicine. And this is the point of view 
that has the greatest opportunities for coming up with true medical breakthroughs. So what do I think are those opportunities for evolutionary medicine? So I think there's two. And this gets back to the kind of the beginning of this talk. So number one is correctly identifying adaptation and function. I've argued that fever is a host defense. I've argued that some things are not necessarily bad. Having a higher than normal blood sugar if you are sick in the hospital after trauma or in critical illness. So fever is a better accepted example of a host defense. We're still working out the details of the high blood sugar example. So that, that's number one, is, is identifying adaptation and function for something like fever. Opportunity two is understanding what is the evolutionary dynamics? What are the functional things happening in the microbiome and in our bodies when we get sick? What is the role of the microbiome in sepsis, which is a major killer in hospitals worldwide? These are things that John Alverdi is working on. Luckily, he has an evolutionary perspective, and I think that this is where breakthroughs are going to happen. So, of course, pictured on the left is the young uh, Charles Darwin during the uh, Voyage of the Beagle era. In the middle here, we have um, the, an example of a tree of life. This is all of the microbes that are part of the human micro, uh, microbiome. Darwin, of course, was the first to sketch out a tree of life, a phylogeny. Now that's used daily in biomedicine, and in particular in microbiome science. So his insights have played a major role in the development of how we think about the microbiome. And of course, the microbiome is, plays a role in human health. Um, a, uh, I should mention that the artist pictured on the right her name is Monica Aisa Martinez. She's a Phoenix, art, Phoenix, Arizona artist, and she does some of the best uh, work, as far as I'm concerned, that gives a, a, a wonderful view of anatomy and um, hopefully soon the microbiome. So for future reference and for future resources, I would direct you to my website, and I have a blog. It's called Evolution Medicine. You can find it at evolutionmedicine.com. Dot com, that's one word. And so here's my entry talking about John Alverdi's work. Perhaps even more important, you can go to uh, this website, which is ISEMPH or ISEMF.org. At ISEMF.org, you can find out information about the medical society that is devoted to evolutionary medicine. This is the International Society for Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health. The website is now advertising a conference that we are putting on. But I should say that the society also sponsors a journal, the Journal of Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health, that is a great place to find work done in this field. Of course, it's not the only area, and you can go to high-impact journals like Science and Nature and find information, but any proper scientific discipline needs to have its own journal, and so this is the one that I would direct you to, and there are a couple others. And I mentioned that we have a, a conference, an annual meeting, and the one that's coming up soon is going to happen in Park City, Utah, here in the United States. And we have six keynotes, two prize winners. We have eight special symposia, each with a complement of, spe of speakers covering the breadth of public health, biomedicine, host pathogen evolution, uh, early life exposures that, and those developmental origins of adult disease, all the things that, that we've talked about during this brief talk 
are going to be covered and far more things because I only scratched the surface here. And I would encourage you, if you can't go to this one, this is an annual meeting and it's going to alternate between the United States and probably Europe. We'll wait and see whether we can get this to take place some, sometime in New Zealand or Australia. And finally, I'm recording this at the studio of Inertia TV and Kate Rusk. And if you want to see a uh, weekly video series that we're putting on, uh, we'll be, we are recording right here at the studio of Inertia TV. And you can go to Inertia TV on twitch.com for our weekly video series on evolutionary medicine. So with that, I want to thank you for your attention. And I hope that this has given you a flavor for what both the breadth of evolutionary medicine and a couple of special opportunities. And of course, this is my own perspective. And there are, there are others, the, 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 there's some great talent in evolutionary medicine and great things happening. And I would encourage you to go to some of those websites I mentioned earlier to find out more. So thank you very much for your attention.